Hello and welcome to another edition of Truth and Rhythm, brought to you by FunkinSwift.net. This is the interview show that gets deep into the pocket with contemporary music's foremost masters of the groove. I'm your host, Scott Dr. Jake Skolfine, and whether you're watching the video on FunkinSwift.net or on YouTube, or listening on iTunes or Spotify, Google, what have you, as always, I thank you so much for your continued interest and support in the program. I also want to give a shout out to the Funk Hall of Fame and Exhibition Center in Dayton, Ohio, of which I'm proud to be a funk ambassador. Go to thefunkcenter.org to learn more and help keep the funk alive. I'm pleased to welcome to the Truth and Rhythm Command Center a prolific jazz funk drummer who has been bringing us some of the baddest grooves since the late 1970s, Mr. Dennis Chambers. Getting his start with P-Funk, he spent several years recording and touring with acts like Funkadelic, The Brides of Funkenstein, and Parliament, and has featured on the P-Funk All-Stars' iconic Live at the Beverly Theater. Chambers would go on to record with a dream list of jazz, fusion, funk, and rock stars, including Don Blackman, John Schofield, Mike Stern, Steve Kahn, the Brecker Brothers, Stanley Clark, George Duke, Bernie Worrell, Bootsy Collins, Eric Leeds, John McLaughlin, Stilly Dan, Lucky Peterson, Niacin, Maceo Parker, Billy Sheehan, Victor Wooden, and Santana. He has also released several albums under his own name, as well as instructional videos, and he continues to keep a very hectic touring schedule. Dennis, thank you for joining me. How are you? Okay, man. I'm uh, ready to rise up out of here tomorrow to go to Spain and play with Mike Stone and Jeff Lober and Jimmy Hassan. And I'll be over there until uh, the 30th. Uh, I'll come back on the 30th of this month. So I'll miss uh, Thanksgiving, but hey, I'll make Christmas. Yeah. Well, by this, this will probably air in uh, early December. So you'll be back uh, hopefully by then and safe and have had a great time. <laughs> yeah. So where are you coming to us from today? Is this your uh, place in Maryland? Yeah, it's, uh, right now I'm living in, living in an apartment, my wife and I. We had the mishaps of having a fire that happened back in February at my house. So they had to, like, uh, do demolition. They had to take out all the walls, ceiling, floors, furnace, uh, you know, everything. So uh, we go back in in January, uh, sometime in January. And uh, the good news is, you know, we walk into a brand new house. Yeah, wow, that's, I'm sorry to hear you have to go through that, though. Yeah, I lost about 20 snare drums. Um, some were, uh, you know, non-replace things. You know, I lost, I think I lost a Buddy Rich snare drum in, the, in that whole thing, and I lost maybe a Gene Krupa snare drum in that whole thing, too. But I had 70 snare drums, so I'm, I'm okay. 70 in that house? Yeah, 70 wow. snare drums. Yeah. But so, you know, I'm very thankful because I didn't lose the, I got one of, uh, in that house, I had a Max Roach drum kit. I had one of Elvin's drum kits. I had a Bob Blakey's drum kit and a uh, Philly Joe, no, Papa Joe. I had Papa Joe's drum kit in that house and that stuff didn't get touched. So I'm blessed. That's good. You got to look at the half full, glass half full, you know. Uh, and I, of course, no one getting hurt. So that's the main thing. Um, so ready to jump into some questions, Dennis? I know you're you're packing and all that, but let's 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 hit it if you're ready. Um, so you're from Baltimore originally, and is that where you grew up? Yeah, I was born and raised right here in Baltimore, right on the east side of Baltimore. And you got into drumming at a very young age, right? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Uh, yeah, I started playing drums at the age of four, and the reason how that happened, uh, my mom was a, was a singer for Motown before I was born, and she was there for a short amount of time. She didn't like it, she came back to Baltimore and started singing locally again, um, and the band used to rehearse at my mom's apartment, either there or at my grandmother's house, and, um, it was the only thing that would keep me still. And right to this day, I, for some strange reason, at the age of four, uh, at that time, I can remember right to this day, uh, the color of the drums, the champagne sparkle Gretsch kit. Um, and uh, his name was Booney, but I don't remember his last name. 
but they called him Booney. And and every time Booney left the house, I started picking up Nas forks and started playing. And I don't know what drew me to the drums. Maybe it was because they were shiny and the cymbals that he was hitting was shiny. I don't know. But, you know, I started, uh, you know, playing on, on anything that I could play on, tables, knives and forks. And, and, and uh, thank God my father was an upholsterer. <laughs> Uh, because he would, you know, he'd come home and he'd see holes in the in the chairs and all that stuff, and and of course, you know, you know, I got the you know little spanking for it uh, with the belt, and uh, and he would fix the furniture, and you know, he would you know, you know say, "Don't do that again." You know, of course, I did it again because I had nothing else to play on. So they, uh, my father or my mother, uh, my, my mother. I think it was my father went out to this place called Ted's Music Store, which was down on Center Street on the east side of Baltimore. And they brought this kit called a Luban kit. And what they did was I think they put the kit together because they took a floor tom, like a 14-inch floor tom or a 16-inch floor tom, I can't remember, and made a bass drum out of it. And they brought this thing home, and that's what I... I uh, that was the second kit. Actually, the first kit was a metal kit, you know, like the Tom Tom, like the bass drum and the Tom Tom over here and the Tom Tom, the snare drum over here, you know, with the cymbal in the middle. Well, my neighbors tore that kit up, and, you know, I was very sad. And and uh, I was like, man, what am I going to tell my parents? My parents going to, you know, feel like I didn't appreciate it. And, and, you know, somehow we had to hide the drums, you know, stuff it under the bed. And, you know, I'm walking around, you know, for, for weeks, you know, they knew something was wrong because I wasn't, you know, trying to play anymore or I wasn't tapping rhythms and stuff. So then they, my mother found the, the uh, found the drum kit under the bed because she was cleaning the room. And, you know, I had to explain what happened. You know, my, my neighbors, uh, uh, Harvey was one of the guys named and, and the other guy we called Book Book. Book. They taught the drum kit, you know, and, and um, I don't know why they did it, but they did. So my father went out and bought a, you know, he felt sorry for me because he, he saw I was not being the same usual kid, which is a happy look, happy go kid, you know, and stuff. And he went out, he went out and bought that drum kit. And I, I just, I just practiced, you know, not knowing what I was doing because I had no formal training. Um, I had nobody to show me what the how it was done, and, and and even still, even back then, you know, like everybody, you know, was holding their sticks traditionally, and they said this is this is how you hold the sticks. Well, then we learned that you know, there was the kind of the wrong way. There's no right way of holding the sticks, especially when Billy Cobham came on the scene, played open-handedly. And, 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 you know, it wasn't match grip. It was, I mean, it wasn't traditional, but it was match grip. And, and the, the speed and power that was coming out of him was just, it was just ridiculous. Um, uh, I used to play this place uh, at the age of six. I was playing with a band called The Fingertips uh, at that time. Um, and it was like a novelty act, like this little kid that could play drums and play the music well. Well, at that time, I was playing like Sam and Dave, Knock on Wood, Stax recording stuff, and uh, some of the Motown stuff, you know, with the groups that I was playing in. But, and 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 the uh, back then in Baltimore, uh, the the, the uh, neighborhood cops that were patrolling the neighborhood, they would patrol the neighborhood on horseback. And so they would come through, and the the, the, the uh, club owner would pay them not to come in, into the club at that time. And the place was called the Peyton Place. And the guy who owned it was named Henry Baker. I never forget him. Um, he would always talk to me, you know, would tell me, like, you know, the world is yours, you know. You know, uh, he would always tell me these great things, you know, like, the world is yours, and, you know, you know, forget about what you see, you know, around you, you know, the ugliness. And back then, if it wasn't ugly then, I mean, because I grew up in this neighborhood, 
it was it was uh, um, um, it wasn't third class or anything like that. But you know, we weren't. It was like I grew up in this neighborhood where the neighborhood raised you. You know, so if you go out and did something wrong, and the if the neighbor or somebody in the neighborhood saw it, you know, you get a little whack, and you know, they they may beat you, and then they take you home to your grandparents because at the time, uh, you know, my grandparents was raising us. You know, my grandmother, she would, you know, like grab you by the ear and you know, and shake you up a little bit, give you a little 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 snap on the back, and wait till your grandfather get home. And then my grandfather get home, then the belt comes out. Then wait till your mom get home, and then your mom come home, and then it's like you know, it was great. But you know, like thanks to all of that, it taught me fear, uh, remorse, and respect. Yeah, and this is around the mid '60s, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. I was born 1959, and you know, I, I um, that's one thing that's missing to the you know right to this day. You know, like a lot of these kids, they don't have any fear. They don't have any remorse and and uh, no respect for sure. They don't they don't have respect for themselves. So you know they don't have respect for you. But getting back to the Peyton place, um, I remember one night, uh, uh, one week, uh, Mr. Baker, you know, like Shorty, he called me Shorty. Uh, other than that, he would call me Midget too. You know, like I've been here before. You know, something like that. But he was like Shorty, you got to, you know, you need to come down to the club and. Uh, we got somebody, you know, like uh, you may not know him, you know. And he asked me about jazz, how much jazz experience have I had? And at that time, it was next to none other than listening to Buddy Rich, you know, playing big band jazz, and um, uh, and also listening to uh, Max Roach, and not understanding any of it, you know. I just knew I was doing something that was beyond me. Um, and something that I knew I could never ever do, I thought at that time. And um, I went back uh, with this guy named uh, Mo Cornish, I think his last name was. He took me to the club, and Lord behold, it was the person I was seeing it was Miles Davis. And Tony Williams was in the band. And this is like right before, was right after they did Miles Smiles record. So I was seeing that year, whatever year that came out, and uh, and, I, and and I right to this day I still remember the color of the drums. It was a white satin finished drum kit, Gretsch drum kit, and Tony played like the cops were outside waiting for him. Like this is going to be the last day he played on earth, and I, I never saw it. I never heard anything like that before. I never saw anything like that before. You know, because we were taught, like, you know, like, first of all, you know, if you're playing, a, uh, if you're playing jazz, you got to play a dotted eighth note on the rod something, you know, even, even still right to this day. But with Tony, you know, like, you know, the time was, uh, you know, the height was on two and four. You know, two, four, two, four, you know. But Tony's thing was, it was four beats to the bar. And the guy was just making up all these things that, like, I... I never heard anything like that before. So after seeing him, it felt like I'd stuck my finger in a light socket, you know, and I couldn't sleep for 48 hours. Cause that, you know, I couldn't, I, you know, I would close, I mean, close my eyes and I could still, I was hearing rhythms that was coming out of that kit that, that haunted me for 48 hours. And by me, you know, like not understanding the love that I had for rhythm in a drum kit, I knew I had to, you know, I had to, you know, I had to do this or die. And you know, I started, you know, working on, you know, like listening to Max, how he played the rock, and you know, like work on, you know, how he brought in the hi hat, where the snare drum would fall, and, and try to figure out how the left, the reason why the left hand worked the way it did was answering the right hand. You know, and then the bass drum filled in, you know, like whether well, you want to feather eight notes or 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 accent things, you know, from there. And uh, the only other person that 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 uh, made me felt that way is when I saw the Mahavishnu playing and watching Billy. I'm like, you know, after buying the records, 
and hearing what that was about, that was mind-boggling. And right to this day, it's still, I still listen to a lot of that stuff. Because I own a lot of bootleg recordings of it, you know, like board tapes and 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 video. And, and, and every time I look at it, I, or every time I hear it, I learn something else about it that, that I didn't, you know, catch before. Um, Billy, you know, he's he's a beast to, to deal with. And 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 um, again, I couldn't sleep for 48 hours. I mean, you know, like after buying the records, then you go see them live. And they didn't play anything like they played it like the records. You know, they, they played better. It sounded better. And this guy would send you right back to the drawing board. And this is, uh, you're, are you older now or still? Yeah, uh, yeah. I was, I was in my teens, I believe, when I saw him. That was 1973. 72 or 73. But when I first saw him, he was playing with Hard Silver. And I think that was 1970 or 1969. One of the two, I can't remember. But he was playing with Hard Silver. Uh, and he, had, he was playing on a, a four-piece kit. Yeah, four piece kit, and he had a suit and tie on, and and he's trying to, you know, what I thought was he was trying to play like Tony Williams, but in his own way. Um. Uh, and then when I saw him play with my vision, I, I, I didn't believe I couldn't believe that was the same guy. I just couldn't believe it was the, it couldn't have been the same guy. It took me a long time to accept that was the same guy. You know. And um, man, that, that taught me a lot, you know, about music and musicians and how they, um, you know, they taught me how to look back and, and revisit Motown. And, and then I discovered, like, you know, you take one company like Motown and you take, and you think about all the artists that they've had, you know, Stevie Wonder, the Jacksons, Marvin Gaye, the Supremes, Marvelettes. Four Tops, and various other artists I can't remember, or The Temptations. Um, all these bands, you know, that they had, and they had one band recorded on all that stuff. But yet, none of that stuff sounded the same. Mm-hmm. None of it. So how does that work? Well, how it works is because whoever presented the music, you know, they said, well, here's the music. We wanted to go here or we wanted to go there. Put your interpretation on it. And they did. And that's why somebody like James Jameson, one of the greatest bass players of our time, um, you know, he came out of it, you know, like uh, taught a lot of bass players how to really play the bass. And then you got, you know, the drummers that, that uh, there was two drummers at that time. And I can't recall their names, but some one was Pistol Pete, I remember that. And I forgot the other guy's name. Um, and and they played, you know, the kit. You know, they played, you know, sometimes they would play together and a lot of times they wouldn't. You know, like, there's just certain things. Or, you know, actually they did play together a lot because I remember now, it's like one drummer would play the groove and then the other guy would do the drum fills. You know, or hit the cymbals while the groove stayed where it was. And, and I think that's where James Brown got his idea of like using two drummers, although James Brown's drummers didn't play together. I was just going to bring up James Brown and ask when you start, you know, getting into non-jazz music like James Brown. Yeah, yeah James, uh, you know, you know, was, uh, uh, of course, everybody listened to James because he was on the he was on the radio station a lot, you know, and uh and of course, you know, for, for black people, he meant a lot because he was, te- you know, teaching us, you know, we need to, you know, pick our heads up, you know, black power, and, you know, say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud, where we were, uh, we were, felt like, you know, something was going to happen if we say anything like that back in the days. And um, of course, then, you know, you had Martin Luther King was around him at that time, and and watching how it's you know the black movement had came about with the uh, with the uh, um, oh man the uh, the Muslims at that time and uh, um, they had the, this uh, 
uh, oh man, they had this, this group of people, and I can't remember the names at the time. But I remember Angela Davis, you know, she was part of this this whole thing, that movement. The Black Panthers? Black Panthers. Black yeah. Panthers. But when did you, like, notice what, like, you know, Stubblefield and Jabo and those guys were doing? Well, I noticed them right away, you know, because uh, I... Uh, you know, listen to James, you know, and being a drummer, you can hear the difference between Melvin Parker and those guys and all the drummers that led up after Melvin and even the ones that came before Melvin. Whoever had the drum chair, the things had changed, you know, a bit, although it was under the, the direction of James Brown. And, you know, when Clive, Clyde Stubblefield, you know, Jallo came along, man, that changed it. That really changed it. You know, it was like the funky drummer and all that stuff came out all that. I mean, you know, like right to this day, some, that's some of the funkiest stuff ever been created. Mm. Outside of Sliding Slide the Family Stone when they did uh, Time, a song called Time. Yeah, that's one of my favorites. In Time is what it's called. And Andy Newmark played drums on that track. And I remember talking to Andy uh, in passing. And uh, he said, when I mentioned him, you know, about that recording, he said he, they were just, he was just fooling around. And, um, you know, they, uh, he was just playing, you know, when, when that thing comes on, you hear like this thing called the funk box or something like that. And there's a little machine and he's just playing, doing all these weird things. And he says, all of a sudden he look up and slides like counting men, which, you know, came up to the top of the song. They rehearsed a little bit of the arrangements. And he just went off of directions of what Sly was giving him as cues, you know, what was going to happen and blah, 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 so forth. So, well, that was another track that was like one of the funkiest things that, that was ever, ever played. Yeah, the syncopation is amazing on that. Yeah. But, you know, thanks to Clive and, and, and Jabo, you know, out comes David Gabaldi. You know, and uh, a whole list of you know, folks, whether they know it or not, you know, because a lot of guys, you know, at this day and age, they're very ignorant when it comes to music. And, and it's all because they don't want to, they don't like to do uh, any uh, homework or they don't want to dig back through history and find out who did what and how it works. You know, like, say, for instance, like, if, you know, if you like uh, Carter Beaufort, for, for um, Dave Matthews Band. And if you don't, you know, if you like him and, and only him, and then, you know, what they do now, you know, at, as you know, this day and age, they got YouTube that, you know, they learn, they can learn how to play from looking at YouTube. And YouTube is it's a blessing and a curse all in one. And it's not YouTube's fault. It's the person who click on it and what they want to get out of it. And taking they, shortcuts. Yeah. And they learn, you know, these drummers, they learn these young guys, they learn how to run before they learn how to crawl. And then they they they, they, they sound exactly like who they trying to who they trying to who they love. They you know, the hero. But off to the left or off to the right of the screen and these little captures. And if you click on one of them you may define out where, you know, your God comes from. So then it teaches you, you know, not to be ignorant to the fact that the guy you're listening to, he didn't invent this. There was another guy that it may have sparked him to do it. And if you click further, then you go to see, like, there was another guy where that, that other guy came from. Like, yeah. like, if you like me, and you click on, you know, Dennis Chambers, and you don't go past that, and all you get is Dennis Chambers, you know, because you idolize me, then that's what you get. But if you click on the side of those things, you know, you see, you know, like David Garbaldi, you see Lenny White, you see Billy Cobham, you see Tony Williams, you see all these drummers, you know, uh, that I grew up listening to. And some of those guys, you know, I see on there, I didn't listen to at all. But you know, use your use your use your sense, and you, if you click on something and you hear, you know, like, well, that sounds like something that that sounds like Dennis. 
And then you look at the year that it happened. They're like, well, wait, wait a minute. You know, Dennis didn't come out. Or they, didn't know, they didn't get to know me until the 80s. But this goes back to the 70s or the 60s. Yeah. Well, and that's what this show aims to help do also. So, you know, that history is so important. Um, so, Dennis, what, where were you at before you ended up connecting with P-Funk? And were you in any bands or doing any recordings professionally before that? Yeah, you know, the first, uh, first record I played on was a big hit. Uh, it was a gospel hit. Uh, I forgot the lady's name. Now she had a choir, and she uh, the choir was out of Washington D.C. The song was called "God Gave Me a Song That the Angels Could Not Sing," and uh, and I was told I played on "Oh Happy Day" by uh, Andre Crouch, I think his name was, um, and I didn't, I didn't, I, you know, I, I didn't know who these people were, and nor did I get, I, nor nor did I got compensated right. Which uh, which taught me about uh, you know like you know people are people, but no matter what kind of religion they're in or what their beliefs are, I had a whole not, I had a different a different look on people that were were supposed to be uh, people of God. You know, I believe that you know at that time that they, they wouldn't rip you off. You know, they wouldn't do this, they wouldn't do that. They treat you right, and you know you'd be compensated. So I went on the strength of that and did those, those two recordings, and and I, I right to the stand I've been paid. That was like uh, early mid seventies. Yeah, yeah, nineteen seventy, maybe nineteen seventy two, seventy three, maybe. Uh, let me see. Maybe 16, 68 or 69. I have to go back and look at those, uh, when those uh, those things were documented. Because I remember one of them, we did the recording, but the thing wasn't released till two years later. You know, so the date, like for instance, like Don Blackman's record. When I did Don Blackman's record, uh, we did it one year and then that thing didn't show up till two years later. Yeah, I think that eighty two on that one. Well, so that was that was uh, 70, 79. So, so where where were you at? What were you do? What were you doing? And how did you cross paths or end up being a recording? I think was the first one. Uncle Jam wants you with uh, George Clinton. Yeah, yeah. Um, how that all got started was. I was supposed to play on stretching out on the Bootsy Collins record, uh, uh, thanks to Mr. Gary Mudbone Cooper, who's from Baltimore, singer. Okay. Um, it was from uh, uh, from this area, and at the time he played, or oh, he was with this group called Madhouse, and Madhouse was like the E.F. Hutton, E.F. Hutton of bands here in the area. When they when they played, all the musicians would come out and see them. They, you know, they had a great. They were very polished, and and they would blow like sometimes they would blow the the leading acts off the stage. They were that good, and um, I think George Clinton uh, or uh, Madhouse was on a gig with with Funkadelic, um, Funkadelic, and and it didn't look good for Funkadelic. <laughs> so. Um, George liked them and tried to get you know, somehow get them incorporated into what he was doing. Uh, the only person that he could talk to was Mudbone, uh, Gary uh, Cooper. Um, and man, I wish you could. I wish you could talk to him and uh, <laughs> hear his side of things. It's very funny, and I, I I can't tell his story because. You know, one of these days he, he's going to write a book, and it's and it should be his right whether you want the story to come out. But man, you wouldn't believe believe the stories that he's got. But anyway, yeah, I'm hoping uh, to have my bone on at some point. 
Oh man, yeah, every you know he's 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 in Cincinnati. No, no, he's in uh, Kentucky right now. That's where he's living, and he's bouncing back and forth between Paris and uh, or Paris and here right now because his wife lives in Paris. She's from Paris, or from France. But getting back to the story, um, uh, Bone tried to get Manhouse to go, you know, go along with the ride, but. Their egos were so big, they didn't want to hear nothing, you know, like, screw George, you know, and, and things like that. So then Gary turned around and got Skeet, uh, Rodney Skeet Curtis, uh, bass player, my brother, you know, who got me in the band. But he got got him in the band and um, followed, uh, it was the horn section. And and two guys from that horn section are still there. Yeah, Benny and uh, Greg. Greg, right. Uh, we used to be in this band called Uncle Remus. In fact, Greg and I and Skeet uh, used to play in a band called Uncle Remus. Benny was like, you know, was like a hitman. Greg, Greg Thomas or Greg Boyer? Greg Thomas. Um, Greg Thomas was in that band. Greg Boyer, I didn't even know back then. Um, Benny Collin was like a hitman on the trumpet, you know, like this guy could hit notes all day long. He was like Maynard Ferguson, except for he was more consistent um, with hitting those notes. And um, somehow, I think Greg Thomas had put the horn section together, you know, with the Greg Boyer and Benny, and they became people of horns. But that was thanks to Skeet. He was trying to get me involved in the, the whole thing. But every time the drum chair opened up, uh, um, before he could get to me, George had hired another drummer. Well, what, kind, what kind of music did Uncle Remus play? What was that set list like? Oh, that was, it was a mixture of all kinds of stuff. It was a mixture of funk, a mixture of, of fusion. I mean, because we liked all stuff. We had the tile power there because we had the horn section to do it. Uh, and and the guys were able to do it, you know, because you know they were great players themselves. Um, it was a mixture, you know. And since we had to go out and perform, we knew that we had to, you know, we we had to, you know, like you know, divide the love of music that we were that we grew up listening to, and put it in a show. So we just couldn't play fusion music all night because we had a one section. Of course, we could have played a lot of chase stuff, but. You know, we had to do the funkadelic stuff. Then we had to do, uh, in fact, a lot of those arrangements uh, where Skeet came in, that stuff was was already, we already had, you know, a Skeet that pretty much already came up with those arrangements way before he joined. He just incorporated that in once we got there. And uh, that's what made, uh, like, the Beverly Theater concert what it was, you know, a lot of those arrangements. And, a lot of those ear candy type of things, you know, um, that made it that made it kind of easy to listen to, and it was funky as crap. Although, although it had the you know like the, the arrangements where sometimes we would do accents and you know crazy little things that kind of remind you of Frank Zappa too. So, what 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 do you think it is about you and Skeet that you know intermesh so well? Well, you know, other the uh, direction of Skeet, you know, I mean, I was playing a lot of jazz fusion music. Of course, he loved jazz fusion music. Uh, he heard me play. He just, you know, he loved the way I, I sounded and brought me into uh, Uncle Remus. And, um, and, but before then, he was in a band called Hot Ice, which was a, a, another EF Hutton band around here. But the crazy thing was, it was only five of them, but it, it sounded like it was more than five people. See, there was Derek Brooks, Kevin Oliver, Skeet, Danny Rogers, and Tony. I forgot Tony's last night. So it was five of them. But yet, I mean, they would do Earth, Wind, and Fire stuff, and it sounded better than Earth, Wind, and Fire, playing their own music. They would play some Funkadelic stuff, and it sounded better than Funkadelic. You know, so when Skeet came in, uh, when we did Uncle Remus and brought me into that band, um, I was, you know, pretty much under the uh, somewhat direction of him, 
you know, you know, telling me what to do, how to do it, when to do it. And and not not etched in stone. You know, he didn't make it seem like it was one of those type of things either. So just, you know, think of this, you know, they will think of that. And, you know, like, you know, some things I couldn't figure out what he meant. He would sit down. He could he played a little bit of drums himself and he had decent time. So he would show me some things. I go, oh, yeah, that. OK, so then I worked on it, worked it out, and, you know, but, uh, uh, you know, then, it, you know, it um, taught me how to play with him. So when he got me with Funkadelic, it was short. It was like one thing we were going to be tight no matter what, you know, because I knew he knew, you know, what's going on and how to do it, you know. So were you were you an uh, admirer of P Funk before then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, all the bands that I played in, I was admiring of, of them. You know, the funny thing out of my career worked out. I grew up, I mean, I played, uh, I grew up listening to the guys I ended up playing with. Mm. You know, like the Schofields, the Brecker Brothers. Well, one of the, I mean, one of the things that's always been said about you, Dennis, is that you have that sort of rare combination of like the jazz kind of drumming chops, but also can just hold that pocket down. So what do you think it is about that, what you bring to it, that you're able to, you know, have strength in both those areas? Because a lot of guys don't transition that well between those two well you know i was always back then you know not knowing it you know like you know growing up in my mother's uh, apartment uh and growing up also in my grandmother's house there was all this music you know that was around me and i thought to become a great musician you have to learn all these styles of music or at least understand how it works um and because back in the 60s I, I remember you know like Musicians, you know, came about and they had blinders on, you know, like a horse. Those A-Rap trucks they used to, or the A-Rap wagon. They used to come in your neighborhood and, they, and you see the horse going and coming up the street. You can't look left and you can't look right. You just got these blinders where you can't see. So the only thing you need is just go straight, straight ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, musicians were like that back then. The jazz guys hated the rock guys. And they definitely hated the funk guys. The funk guys didn't like the rock guys, kind of like jazz, you know, the, the freeness of it, but afraid to incorporate it then. And this is where Clyde and Jabo steps in. Um, um, you know, like I said, these drummers, they, they, they didn't, you know, they didn't like different styles. They only liked what they were into. Well, with Jabo, if you listen to Jabo or, or, or uh, Clyde, you know, you can hear you can hear the swing in that stuff, and of course, James Brown is it. He was a jazz fan too. Like when you listen to Superbad, and he gives he gives Sinclair the solo, and then Sinclair sounds like Coltrane. That solo is out. Is he? You know, like it's one of those Coltrane solos. And 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 I remember there was some uh, back in the early James Brown career uh, career. When he was, you know, being, you know, when he was getting known, they would play a lot of big band arrangements, you know, to start the show. And that's why he had a, you know, at one point he was kind of around this big horn section, you know. And and uh, later on, you know, meeting Maceo Parker, he would tell me a lot of the stories, you know, uh, back uh, about James. Back then, and I wish you could talk to Maceo too, because he's a history. I mean, this guy's like full of history. I've been after Maceo. That he's so busy all the time, he never stops playing. Yeah. But yeah, hoping to get Maceo. He was funny, man. He would come to my room. <laughs> he would come to my room every night, man. And 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 by the time he leave my room, I, I'm like throwing up from laughing. You know, some of the stories he would tell me about James and. And about himself and my, you know, the both sides of my body, my 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 rib cage, and you know, both sides are locked up from laughing at this guy. And and of course, there was a lot of serious moments too, you know, with James that uh, wasn't pretty that he experienced. But you know, he's got to tell that. You know. Well, a lot of those jazz guys though ended up. I mean, funk was such an undeniable force by the mid and late seventies. That so many of those jazz cats ended up, you know, dabbling in funk at least. Yeah. 
Yeah. You know. But, but you know, but the first thing, the first person I remember hearing it from me was was Jabo and, and uh, you know, Jabo Strux and uh, Clyde, especially Clyde. His right hand was ridiculous. What What was it like when you first um, started recording? Did you Did you first perform with Funkadelic or go right into the studio? No, I I I. I uh, I got the call uh, when I joined for the well when I joined the organization. I had, I, I came through the Brides of Funkenstein. I was playing with them first, and I think that lasted for about a year. Uh, uh, I think it was a year, and then after that, I ended up you know working with Funkadelic for Palmer and Funkadelic only. Were, were you on drums on that um, Starwood Hollywood Brides show in nineteen? The anti tour. I'm not sure if it was you or Frankie Wadi on the on that. I was at that show, but yeah. Um, do you remember that at all? Hollywood '78. Uh, I think it was the first Brides show with Don and, and Lynn. No, I wasn't on the first one. That may have been. That may have been uh, Frankie. Yeah, I think maybe it was. Okay. I, I was going to, you know, the things after after that, because I, I remember, and I got pictures of me playing Frankie's drum kit, like as he was still there, but he wasn't. Yeah. So you did uh, Never Buy Texas from a Cowboy, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And Uncle Jam, and then, um, so you ended up, though, going out with, with Parliament on tour as well, or? Yeah, yeah, that's where, that's where I spent most of my time, just being on the road with it. And then around that time, George was like, he made a decision. He was going to have a, the, the, the band was going to be a live, uh, live musicians that played live. And then he's going to have the studio guys who, who did the studio work. And it was weird, man. It was like, uh, you know, every now and then, you know, of course, Bootsy, you know, was, you know, he had the key to go you know, back and forth. And Skeet had the key to go back and forth. You know, in, in the rhythm section. Um, but, and then I got, you know, somewhat the key to go back and forth. But by the time I got the, the key to do that, um, it was funny. It was like, I, I, you know, you walk into a room and, and everybody looking at you like, that's him. Oh my God. How did, you know? So I was a kind of a, a growing legend in the, in the band uh, at the time. Uh, around the what they call the studio guys because all they try to do is try to play like what Skeet and I uh, what we had done to it and um, and and then they get a chance to play with me and they, they freak out or the guys will play with Skeet and they freak out but Skeet and I could never play together or the guys who played live as a section you know as a unit we never played together and then um, uh, uh, one album, I, I can't remember which one it was, whether that's Heat Not as the bass and drum section. And oh, that's well, Glory Hell Stupid, Parliament? Maybe that's what it was. I, I, you know, I think maybe, maybe that's what it was. And they hired Skeet Not to come in, and I think that was because of Skeet's request, I think. Uh, he wanted me to be the drummer. Was it that one? It could have been that. That was so long ago now. I can't clearly. Yeah. So I do. I do recall the history about about that. You know about that record where we had we were doing the chocolate jam shows, <laughs> and we had and we had uh, uh, Rick James on on tour with us. It was all either Rick James or for Roger Troutman or. Uh, I think we had Prince maybe a few times on the on tours, and there was all, it was always a fight. And we had the Barcades and Cam, uh, Cameo. Um, uh, the, uh, what's that group? Ray Parker used to be with Radio. Radio. They was on tour with us and Mother's Finest, and you know all these great acts, man. And um, but yet backstage there was always there was always a fight between Rick James and. And uh, Prince or Rick James and uh, Roger Trout. Mm -hmm. You know, they had these 
you know, Rick James is just out of his freaking mind. This guy's had an ego about the size of the stadium. And um, at that time, I remember we were doing these in stores, what they called it, you know, where we go in and sign autographs and maybe, you know, get a few cassette tapes out of the deal or whatever. I mean. And Rick came in and saw that cover. <laughs> and he thought it was a joke on him. And he thought George had, had you know, did this thing out of spite. Had a, you know, this guy's body, you know, dressed up in a funk uh, outfit and the, with the donkey head with the, the braids. And he thought, you know, George had, you know, said, this is Rick James. It's a joke, you know. And the guy, when he came in, he would he would smash up all the records. Every record he saw, album, every album he saw, he would smash. He took cassette tapes and stomped them. Yeah. Now, now we're on he our didn't way. take a joke well. No, no. Now and now we're we're on our way back to the stadium to do sound check, and uh, we ride past this limo, this white white limo, and the driver before we get up to it, you can see the driver goes to the back door and pulls this guy up, and as we went by, it was Rick James, the the limo driver kicked him out of his own limo. You know that guy was nuts, man. <laughs> and that was even way before he got really out there. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> so, you know, the stuff that you saw, you know, the Eddie Murphy, uh, I'm sorry, a Charlie Murphy skit on him, that stuff is all true. Yeah. You know, like with Prince and Rick James. That, those guys were, you know, they were, they were, they were different. They were, they marched to a different beat of a different drum, I should say. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, was it like a, a endurance test for you, you know, sitting behind the kit for some of those P-Funk marathon shows? Yeah, I mean, because back then uh, they had uh, two drummers uh, at the time. It was like uh, me, uh, myself with, or should I say, it was like Cordell Boogie Monsoon and myself, or uh, who was that? Oh, it was uh, Tyrone Lampkin and myself. And Tyrone you know, he was the guy, you know, he did the, the Maggot Brain records and all that stuff. Um, and he passed away shortly after that. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, he, he uh, you know, he wouldn't practice that much, you know, and, um, and you know, George had to, you know, it's a hard decision for George to let him go. And he had to let him go, you know, because the guy was doing some other things, you know, some other uh, activities in his life that he was contributing to. Um, God bless his soul. And then and then, and then um, uh, Jerome tried to come back when I was in the band. And um, that didn't work out either. Um, After mutiny, he tried to come back? Yeah. yeah. I wasn't aware of that. He tried to come back and uh, he, he called me up out of the clear blue one day and was talking about the idea of having two drummers and he and I as a team. And just George and George just looked at me kind of funny. And then I found out later, according to George anyway, George says, you know, he says, fool, don't you know he's after your gig? I was like, what? What do you mean? He says, the reason why he called you and trying to get you to come, yeah, try to get you to co-sign and him coming in, because he want he wanted he want me to hire him and get you out of the band. And I'm like that mf, you know. So we were down in Richmond one day, and uh, they called they we did a sound check. I came early just to you know, get some practicing, and you know, Maceo Parker was playing over there playing piano. You know, listening to me play while he's doing his thing. And walks Jerome. Jerome walked up on stage and heard me play. And he thought that when he heard me play before, that's all I was into. He had no idea. He had no idea. I had this fusion thing on me, too, which was the Billy Cobham, Tony Williams side of it. And when he saw that and heard that, he kindly walked off stage. And he, we could see him walking through the building, going out. He went out the front door and got in his car, and we never saw him again. 
Now I saw him after some years after I, uh, you know, after my thing with him, with Funkadelic. I was already out the band, and then I noticed uh, George had hired him to come back. But you know, even that was crazy because I would sit there and watch him at soundcheck. He's playing with the right hand, and he was like looking at his beeper with his left hand, and and then he pulls out his cell phone. And and sometimes he would take the call while he's doing sound check, and I'm going like, "Oh my God, I can't believe George hired this guy." You know, like what an ego, you know, I thought. But it wasn't an ego; it's just that you know, um, I mean, you know, what he contributed to the band. You know, it was, it was uh, he contributed a lot. You know, he was the one that you know wrote the song "Turn the Roof Off" the seconds, one of their biggest hits. Yeah, that's that record back there. Yeah. 